river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie. Welcome back to the TradQuest podcast. James Orr here. And joining us, as always, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, buddy? How much, man? Just uh, recorded an awesome podcast. Excited to get out to you guys with one of the legends. Yeah, uh, I can't believe we didn't get this guy on sooner. Man, I could have talked to him for another two and a half hours. Yeah, when you think of, uh, you know, the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. Um, yeah. Sterling Holbrook is one of those guys. Just a super neat guy. Can't wait for you guys to listen to this. You know, helicopter pilot in Vietnam to diving for treasures to living in teepees and adventures in Alaska and bears and hogs and just, man, we could have talked to him forever. Good guy. Definitely a good yeah. guy. A lot to learn from. If I had to give him a nickname, it'd be Mr. Adventure. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely, sure. um, definitely gave us some words of wisdom to live by, that's for sure. So, uh, we won't take too long. We'll get on with it and, uh, we'll do our giveaway for our Patreon members. We know, appreciate you guys for sticking with us. We've been slacking a little bit lately. It's been hunting season and we've been out chasing elks around the mountains. And, uh, yeah. but we're back and we'll be back at it. So we're doing, uh, giveaway we got some sick arrows from stump stalker on instagram yep Lane they're up with a half dozen arrows custom made hand, so he'll tell you about yeah custom made sick of spruce uh beautiful custom arrows uh from stump stalker if you guys are on instagram go to stump stalker and check him out on there um uh, blaine's from canada super good guy uh, we appreciate you supporting the podcast, Blaine, and uh, whoever wins these arrows, they're going to be pumped. They are gorgeous. Yeah, and you said they're 6570s? 6570s. They've got some 125s glued on them now, but you could change the tips out to, or shorten the shafts up if you needed to stiff them up or, or loosen them up a little bit. But uh, I think that they should work out of most guys' hunting weight bows. They're, they're definitely some lookers. Yeah, for sure. And we already did a drawing. So Brady Robinson from uh, the great state north of us up in Washington. Thanks for the support. And James will ship you out those arrows. Enjoy. Send us pictures. And good luck, man. Thanks for the support. And any of you guys out there that want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com. we got links on our website. And uh, get signed up. And companies out there we appreciate you guys for sending us stuff to give away to our patreon members yeah Yeah. so yeah any of you uh guys that are gals that are involved in traditional archery and uh want us to uh you know plug the the business and uh help us promote traditional archery uh you know get a hold of us and we'd love to work with you guys and like bob said uh go on to patreon and support the podcast We've got some pretty cool stuff coming. I'm excited about uh, this winter and some of the cool interviews we have lined up. So 
I hope you guys enjoy this one. And if you guys got any kind of critiques or ideas for the podcast, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, for sure. And if you have any questions you want us to ask these guys that we've had on and, and we'll get on again, you know, make sure to send us an email and, and, uh, let us know if you have any questions you want asked, you know, to guys like Sterling and we can do a little Q and A podcast with them because we just can't, can't cover it all. There's just too much with guys like that. So shoot us an email. We'd love to get in touch with you guys. Thanks for the support and enjoy Sterling Holbrook. If anybody's been into traditional bow hunting for a long time, they know who Sterling Holbrook is. I've been reading your articles in Traditional Bow Hunter since uh the early nineties. Since about when I could read. <laughs> and uh I always liked your articles, your adventures and the primitive side of things, and maybe you could just give our listeners a little look into the man himself and kind of what you did for a living and how you got started in bow hunting. Well, I got started in bow hunting <laughs> so early I can't really remember. And I, I, uh, my grandmother got me a lemonwood bow when I was like six years old and it was way too strong. But I actually saw Howard Hill do one of his displays when he would go around with his short movie that Hollywood paid him to travel to promote. And, uh, and then I don't know. I just always crazy about bows. I made one in the sixth grade for a science project. A copy of a Cherokee bow I'd seen in a museum and I shot bows up till I went in the army and then my bows disappeared with my little brother and then when I got out I gun hunted for one year. Shot the first wild deer I'd ever seen and then I just went to bow hunting and kind of worked my way backwards but I, I started off with recurves and stayed with recurves till I went to long bows and then I made self bows. And I don't know, it's like an education. A bow is like a a tool to educate me on the wilderness rather than just something to harvest an animal with. Yeah, so wow. you went backwards or forwards, I guess, which way you want to look at it. But seems like that's the way a lot of guys go to the self-bows. Definitely not there yet. Did you uh, grow up, Sterling, to have Howard Hill swing by? It was in Georgia. Um, and... Back then in the movie theaters, you'd be surprised at some of the people. I mean, it was different than it is now, like music concerts and everything. <laughs> but uh, he did the stage performance, and I, I was so little, I can't even remember exactly where I was. It could have been in Atlanta. I grew up just south of it, west of Atlanta in Newnan, Georgia, on a farm in the country, and was real lucky in that... Uh, my dad got this farm after World War II pretty much for quail hunting. And he had a, a man that lived on the farm a mile back in the woods on a footpath. And his family, back several generations before, had had been escaped slaves that actually lived with the Upper Creeks. And they had lived in the woods. And still at his time, he favored living in the woods. And he taught me to make bows, really. And we shot river cane arrows and hunted you know, rabbit, squirrels, there weren't any deer then, turned the first deer loose in 64, 65 in my area, but he knew, he knew about everything about the woods. He was a big influence on me. So there, there wasn't any deer down there back then, huh? They had to release some? Yeah, um, a whole lot of the deer in the south came from Alabama. They were actually places in Alabama in the Mobile, 
um, and above Mobile in the Alabama Tom Bigby River Delta area up in the it's a area between those two rivers that is still pretty wild country and there were deer and turkey always there. They always have had a turkey season there. And a lot of the turkeys that are in the United States now can trace their genes back to those turkeys. And in the South, they traded turkeys to the North for deer. They made the first releases in Georgia, actually Northern deer, maybe Wisconsin. I can't remember the exact state, but they turned the first ones loose in my area in Heard County and Georgia and on the Chattahoochee River and about 64 or 5. Now, there were deer in the mountains before then. I had gone with my dad deer hunting when I was 10 up in the war woman drainage of northeast Georgia on the South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia area up there. And we never saw a deer, but the next year, a guy with us killed one, which you could hunt for a week and never see a deer. And then there was some deer down in the river bottoms of South Georgia. But through most of the state, there were no deer. Now, can't you get one every day or something in Alabama? Actually, I think they get two a day, only one of which can be a buck. Wow. But I can tell you the deer numbers. When I I left Alabama, the deer numbers were down. Of course, you know, they blame the coyotes, but (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Shooting two deer a day probably don't help. So this... uh... This guy that taught you how to hunt that lived in the woods on a footpath, like what was his name, and he taught you how to make bows? Yeah, his name was Dahl Barber, and my grandfather was a, like a pretty famous exhibition shot and quail hunter. People would follow him around in the south while he, he actually hunted quail. They'd go in buggies. He'd take a train, and they would ship his stuff. I have one of Winchester's first auto-loading shotguns, uh, 1911 SL, that Winchester gave him. And he had a, a fellow that would go with him that was his hunt buddy, and he was a black man. And he he was Dahl Barber's uncle. And so when my dad, my grandfather died before I was born, and when my dad got his farm, he got this fellow's nephew who he had sort of raised named Dahl Barber and he like looked after our farm just used it like he wanted to my dad had a barbecue restaurant in town it was kind of the hangout for all the hunters and fishermen and so Dahl lived on the farm and they didn't ever go to the town hardly and it was pretty pretty interesting he knew pretty much everything there was to know about a plant or animal what were you guys making? What was he teaching you to make the bows out of it down in Alabama? White oak. You take a white oak, white oak log about, oh, I guess maybe it was four to six inches in diameter, and we would split it and wire it bark to bark and put it in a hole in a creek. He would take like baling wire and wrap the staves together, and we'd put them in a hole in a creek, and he'd let them sit, and then he'd pull them out, and we'd start working them, and he used... Um, Actually used double bladed axe to rough them out, which he used for about everything. He carried a hammer and a double bladed axe everywhere he went. But he uh, then he went to a broke piece of broke glass, broke coke bottle, and he scraped them down. Which he had a lot more patience than me. And he made the limbs were elliptical, and he used a uh, river cane 
which was everywhere. It wasn't really, it was a Rundinaria tecta, which is high ground cane. It's a little bit lighter than river cane. That's what we made arrows out of. How long did he stick them in the holes in the creek before he started working them? <laughs> it seemed like a long time to a kid, but uh, I imagine it wasn't but about a month. Wow, that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I made mine bigger than his. When I made my science project bow, we had stopped in the Smoky Mountains on a trip at a museum up somewhere south of Cherokee, North Carolina, on an old homestead. And they had a a black locust, I'm sure it was, Cherokee, a real black-looking Cherokee bow and river cane arrows and a quiver there. And it just really really intrigued me and when we started school we had to have a science project so i tried to copy that and you i used white oak and because that's what doll told me to use but he kept telling me my bow was too big and it, it was there's too much wood there had too much hand shot but it, it was still shooting when i left for the army wow that's incredible how how long were the bows because i mean this was a long time ago how long were the bows he was making back then i know everybody kind of settles into the 60s it seemed like now were they a lot shorter yeah his bows also he was making them he was making most i saw him make one of his boys a bow and my brother a bow and helped me with a bow and we were small so it's hard to judge and his bows he only pulled maybe 20 22 inches and his bows were in the low 50s and the bow I made was like a six-foot bow. And white oak is a heavy wood, and you know. But, they, um, you know, we shot plenty of rabbits with them. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. So you took off for the Army, and then you came back and settled in Alabama? No, it was in Georgia. I came oh, back Georgia. when I first got out. I came back to Georgia, and I was there a few years trying to figure out where I was going in life, and I I had a construction company for a little while, and then I decided did heating and air conditioning, mechanical contracting, and a few things, and I decided I want to go back to flying helicopters, so I did, and then I moved to Florida and moved all over. I lived in the Caribbean about 17 years. I settled in Alabama in the early 90s on a project, actually, I was working on offshore, and when fall came, i Drove inland looking over the country and saw a real pretty rural area about 100 miles north of Mobile at that area I was telling you between the Alabama and Tom Bigby. And it was a, a wildlife refuge there that still had an intact ecosystem on big hardwood river bottoms, had deer and hogs in it. So we kind of settled in there for a while. But I had worked in Alaska before and we missed Alaska, so we started coming to Alaska in the summer. In 99, I believe it was. And I flew up here summers and go back down there where I could hunt all winter. But I moved up here to Alaska for good in 2013. I came for a visit, met Dick Robertson in Yote, and went out on the Moose John, and I missed Alaska so much. I just went home, packed up everything I had in my pickup truck and trailer, and sold the rest, abandoned it, gave it away, and drove it to Alaska. And I ain't hardly left since. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's awesome. Before we get into that, um, didn't I've read some articles? Didn't you like with your helicopter stuff? Weren't you doing like exploration in the Caribbean for 
Like, what were you doing down there? Actually, I was running a boat then. I mean, I had we had our own company. I, it didn't really have anything to do with the helicopter. I've kind of jumped back and forth between helicopters scare me to death. I'd move into boats. I'd get sick of being on the ocean. I'd go back to flying. <laughs> but uh, um, my wife, Krista, and I had a, a diving company where we did shipwreck exploration and remote sensing and cultural resource management working on early colonial shipwrecks. Oh, wow. You just might be the most interesting man in the world, Sterling. <laughs> oh, I doubt it. <laughs> that uh, you sounds def- incredible. You definitely, uh, yeah, you definitely, uh, seem to head towards adventure, which is great. Well, you know, I decided, I guess probably a lot of that. I had a great childhood on the farm and then going in the army, learning to fly helicopters, which I cared nothing about flying. I just kind of got pushed into that. But I learned a skill that I could always get a job doing. And having survived the Army flying helicopters, I had to be pretty good at it. And then I also learned from being in the Army that life's really, really short. And a lot of stuff that people think is important isn't. And I was going to sell my days dearly doing something I enjoyed doing. I cared less whether I made anything or not. That's powerful. Those are wise words right there. So these shipwrecks, like, what, what's some of the stuff you found? Or, you know, like, I'm kind of into the treasure hunting thing real quick before we get into Alaska Adventures. Well, I lucked out. I was always really, really, actually in high school, I wanted to be a marine biologist and go to Scripps Institute in California. But my parents talked me into going to a small college at first in Georgia there near home and helping on the farm on the weekends and I was kind of like over the farm by then and so I I learned to fly but I always was real interested in diving I had bought all my own diving gear when I was 13 and learned to dive in this rock quarry and I read everything I could in magazines and I knew about the Spanish flota system and treasure in the Caribbean and Florida and right before I left Vietnam the week before I went on a trip to the Florida Keys, and I met an old Salvador, Art McKee, and he was closing his little museum, but he saw I was excited, and he opened back up and carried me inside and showed me a bunch of stuff he'd found, and then while I was in Vietnam, I had a couple of books on shipwrecks, and after that, every chance I could, I studied, picked up charts and maps and plotted and schemed, and it took a long, long time to get there, but uh, I, uh, I wound up coming into Key West, Florida in the mid-80s just in time to work on a shipwreck called the Atosha that a guy, Mel Fisher, had located off Key West. And that put me in touch with a lot of other people. And some of them realized I had self-educated pretty well in the field, so they wanted to partner up with me. And we went back to an island called Barbuda after that and located several colonial period shipwrecks. None of them had a a great deal of treasure on it. They had a, a large amount of really interesting artifacts and that kind of told the history of the people there. And it was a real, it was a great primitive island. A handful of people lived on the northwest side and we were anchored up on a reef on the southeast side and there were wild goats and guinea fowl and wild pigs and wild cows and everything running over this thing. So I got to shoot my bow a lot when it was rough and 
it uh then I came back to the States actually to go to Europe to research in the archives in Spain and in London and various places to research a couple of the wrecks we'd located and we wound up going to Alabama to look for a wreck for five years that we never found. It's kind of hard. We couldn't hardly stay ahead of the oil company and the pipelines made it hard to use remote sensing. And we worked on a ship down off the southeast Florida coast sank in 1659 and it was real interesting. We actually found a little treasure there. But it was always the search rather than the treasure, actually. <laughs> yeah, that sounds incredible. I know I was talking to you the other night and you told me a good story. Maybe you can tell it sounds like that was your first job up in Alaska and maybe tell that story. Um, spending five months out there with your helicopter. You know, that was in 1980. <clears throat> I had moved to Florida and was working seven and seven in the oil field petroleum helicopters in Louisiana and I hated every minute of it and we didn't get paid anything there were a lot of helicopter pilots in from Vietnam and treated us pretty bad and a friend quit and he called me and said you got to come to Alaska and I didn't you know I'd read Jack O'Connor and always dreamed of Alaska but uh, I called the company in Anchorage and they asked me a few questions and realized I had been a scout pilot in Vietnam and they were flying the same helicopter up here and there weren't that many of us and so they brought me up and treated me great paid me great I was in Anchorage two days I was thinking this is wonderful and we loaded the helicopter up and took off through the Alaska range through Mystic Pass over on the southwest side of Denali Preserve and Park and I didn't get back to town for almost five months and it was pretty I didn't have the right clothes and I'd just come from Florida. I had on Levi's and a cotton shirt and a goose down vest I did have and some sorry boots. And I learned pretty quick. It was a wet, cold summer, too. And we worked our way down the Alaska Range, dropping these these geologists off on top of all the ridges in the Alaska Range that drained to the west. And then these other people off at the head of all the streams taking sediment samples. So I just moved them around all day, and we moved down the Alaska Range. And the last place we camped was further down the right about 200 miles down the range. And in late fall, after I'd been out forever, uh, an airplane landed on this old mine strip where we got supplies. Uh, planes would fly out every week to two weeks, depending on weather, and bring us. One would haul beer and one would bring food. And they fed us really good to keep us out there. <laughs> and but we were out of we were out of beer and we were out of food and the geologist heard a plane and came to my tent because the weather was bad and we couldn't get up in the mountains and they said the food's here take off so I grabbed my sling load net and gear and the helicopter and flew over and when I was on approach I saw a plane leaving and I realized it wasn't ours and I landed there and I saw two guys up at the end of the little strip on top of this mountain and I shut down and I walked up there and I could tell they weren't too happy to see a helicopter there and the tall lanky one was friendly though and the kind of smaller stocky guy he he kind of looked at me over his shoulder and didn't say much and I was amazed though because they had bows and back quivers and wood arrows and 
I didn't know there were any real bow hunters left in the whole world. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what are you guys doing? They said, we're going to float this river. And I looked to the north, which off the mountain that way is a pretty good-sized river. And I said, man, that's a long ways. They said, no, we're not floating that one. We're floating this other one. And I looked down. I knew all about the other one. I'd been up and down it for months in the helicopter. And I said, man, you can't do that. It's 10 miles of beaver ponds to get to the river. They said, oh, we know. And uh, so they, I asked to see one of them's there, and he pulled out and had his wiki, a delta on the end of it. And I said, man, that's what I use. And they said, well, you might be a bow hunter after all. And uh, I said, well, you know, I ain't got a bow right now. My rounding explorer delaminated, and uh, I was trying to get one, and they just wanted to give me credit, you know, on those new things they got. And, and they said, well, we know a guy will make you one. And they gave me Dick Robertson's phone number. And so when I got back to Florida that winter, I started studying, and I wound up ordering one. And I didn't couldn't remember those guys' names till about, oh, nine years later. And I saw in a Bow Hunter magazine an ad with the tall Nike when it was Doug Boylan, and he, I think, was president of the PBS then. And then about the same time, I got the Boyer's Craft for Christmas. Jay Massey wrote when I opened it up, and I saw a picture there of these mountains with two bows laying on a rock. I knew exactly where it was, and I said, well, that's those guys I met. <laughs> but uh, So, so I, awesome. I stayed in touch. Yeah, that, that's a great story. That's awesome. So did you end up hunting with those guys? I mean, I know you hunted with Doug, talking to him over the few, you know, in the since then. Most of your adventures are just with your wife, right? You guys get after it. Yeah, I've been really, really lucky ever since um, I had gone through a divorce and had kids, and it was pretty traumatic, as anyone that's done that knows. And then I met my present wife, Krista, in Panama City, and she was a diver. That's how I met her, was a local diving club and uh so we started diving together and then she was leaving for the caribbean and i decided i better go and uh so we kind of stayed together doing that and i i bought her a bow i bought her a recurve first pretty heavy recurve with sights trying to get her to thinking she could get ahead a little quicker and she never really liked it had it about a year and then she asked me for a long bow and I'm like, oh, they're hard to shoot. You better stick with this recurve. You ain't shooting it. But I broke down and called Dick and got her a longbow, and she picked that thing up, and she shot my pants off ever since, and pretty much everybody else too. But <laughs> from spearfishing, she took to hunting, and she and I have been, that's my main hunt partner, and I've been lucky. I don't have to hunt up somebody to go hunting with, and she's about as good a woods person as you'll ever meet. She's up first every day getting a fire going and getting coffee going and cooking pancakes on the fire and willing to stay out for a month in the roughest country. Oh, well, I'm lucky. Gosh. Yeah, you are. You got a unicorn there, buddy. Unicorn. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, she's a hunter. She's a she's a predator, that's for certain. She's taking a lot of game. Tougher yeah, than I am. <laughs> we'll have to get her on, too, and, and uh, pick her brain. You don't meet a lot of... A lot of women, they're that tough, that's for sure. She just, we, I guess part of it's just kind of a lifestyle, being out when we were working on shipwrecks. We were living pretty primitive back then. I mean, we stayed anchored up for a month and a half behind the reef, you know, and didn't have a way to, we had to 
we carried 600 gallons of water with us, and that was it. We had to go back somewhere to get water, take on water. So we learned to use rainwater and not waste anything and live off the ocean. We didn't have refrigeration. Whatever we ate, what we killed out of the sea or caught. And then that kind of moved into, we lived in a teepee for most of all the fall and winter when we first came to Alabama hunting. And then when we bought property there, we moved in the teepee on it, on the land, cut all the trees down and built our own place. So she was used to, you know, kind of roughing it, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yeah, I think so. See, we that's where we're, teepee. that's next level that, there. That's where we're going wrong, Bob. We're putting our wives in houses and giving them cars to drive. We should, we should have had them in a teepee from the get go. Yeah. Yeah, the more you, the more, <laughs> I'll get in trouble for this, but <laughs> the more you give them, the more they'll want, so you gotta start them off. <laughs> but she was always like me. She was willing, everything is a price to pay. If you wanna, you know, if you wanna, I guess you'd say have adventure. I don't know what else to call yeah. it, but if you wanna be out, then you gotta, you know, you gotta give up some other things. Oh, that's true. So through this whole, um, you, I mean, your your life has been full of adventure, and it's gone in a lot of, taken you in a lot of different places. Um, how often was the bow absent, or was the bow always a part of your lifestyle somehow or some way? Oh, I've never been anywhere without my bow. <laughs> my house got on fire. I grabbed my quiver and my bow and ran out the door. I had yeah. a bow. I had a bow with me. on a boat anywhere I ever went. I shot everywhere I ever went. I mean, if I if I was anchored up, I'd shoot on the back deck. Very cool. I've, I've always had a bow. Bow is about my most. I don't know what to call it. It's not exactly a tool. I have friends where the bow is just a tool for harvesting animals. But the bow is. I would shoot a bow every day, even if I never hunted again. You you had made a statement at the beginning of this podcast that the bow has taught you about the wilderness instead of the wilderness teaching you about the bow. Could you elaborate on that? Because that was a you know, pretty pretty powerful statement. Yeah, it's what people don't. I get frustrated with archers and blame people or anything for it, but they kind of lost out. It's like. I've tried to make shooting the bow as hard as I could. That's why I like to make my own stuff. Instead of trying to make it easier, I make it harder because the harder it is, the harder you have to hunt, the more you learn. I just learned a, a lot about caribou last week up in the Brooks Range. I was near so many of them, so many hours. You know, I picked up a lot of things that if I'd been hunting with a rifle, I'd make a 70 yard shot. I'd have never learned. The bow makes it, you know, as you well know, we start hunting when most people's hunt ends. But right. see, modern, modern archers, I guess I would call it, you know, they're trying to see how far they shoot. And they tell me, oh, I, you know, I shot this animal. And that's okay to harvest animals. I mean, I got nothing against gun hunting anything else, especially in Alaska. The season's short. Not many animals. It's hard to get to them. And everybody wants meat for the winter. You know, food's expensive out here. So you want to grab a thirty out six and get your moose, I'm not gonna say anything. I don't keep using my bow, but you know, but the Absolutely you don't get the education. The bow teaches you 
it, it immerses you. It's like I've never been able to stay in a hotel and go hunting. I got to be out in the woods. I can't go for a weekend hardly. One reason I've kind of lived out in places is I have to get like it's just a feeling. All of a sudden, you you kind of either got it or you had. Like early in the morning when it's dead calm, we used to hunt with a, with a boat. We'd pull up in the swamp to the bank, you know, and shut the engine off and sit there, and then we would ease out, and I would just stand in the woods there, not moving until I had kind of unwound and got more to nature speed. And that's and the bow kind of does that. You got a rifle in your hands, you move a little quicker. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's a uh, I can relate to that completely. So let's talk about your equipment and how how that has changed over the years. Um, we know that you're definitely into primitive equipment. Um, you've made some references to some laminated bows from Dick Robertson, whatnot. Maybe you know talk to us about how your bows and arrows and broadheads and quivers um, how they've evolved over the years. All right, well, obviously, I started off with self bows because we talked about that. And when I came back from the Army in 70, the winter 70, that fall, I shot the first bat I'd ever seen in the woods, 308. And I, I heard about bow hunting. I didn't even know there was a bow season. Somebody told me. So I, I went downtown and bought an American R300 shoot special, a laminated a recurve, and some microflight arrows. And, Started hunting, it took me two years to get a you know, my bow, but I started field archery. I met a guy in town, he and his wife were shooting a feeder trying to qualify for the Olympics, and he taught me formal archery, and it really helped me a lot. And I, yeah, a lot of it didn't help me bow hunting, but it taught me archery, it taught me form, taught me what I should be doing. And when you shoot field archery, your form has to be dead on, or you're not going to do anything. But he convinced me I needed to get a new bow, so I got a one of the Wilson brothers, Black Widows, and he starts setting it up and everything. Since he shot feet, he had to shoot fingers and releases were just coming out. But I had I had four pins put on my bow. I shot bow hunter, unlimited class. But most of the bows were like if field archery then in the hunt bow hunter class were like forty, forty one pounds. It had to be forty. But I was hunting with a fifty four pound black widow and so that's what I stuck with. I went to Colorado um, about 73, I guess, with a group of guys from the archery club. And uh, coming out of Main Elk Creek Canyon north of Rifle, we were after elk, but had a mule deer tag, too. Back then, you could get a mule deer for 25 and elk for 25. You'd go to Colorado for 100 dollars And James. But uh, I was coming out of Canyon and looked on the next ridge over. And I saw a huge mule deer walk down the ridge and disappear in this little clump of aspen. And I looked and I watched and watched and laughed and never saw him come out. When we talked about it, you couldn't get there from where we were. And the next day, we're coming out. And it's like, and I look and there's this mule deer again. Anyway, make a short story, I mean, a long story short, I, I slipped up the third day, crawled up on this mule deer, had a great shot, got to three-quarter draw, and the aluminum arrow was resting on a, a, a target rest, I won't use the name, and an adjustable button. It, it broke. Aluminum arrow bounced off that metal handle, 
I'm trying to hold it up with my finger while this deer bounces off. Now, I've been bare shafting at 50 yards, keep them all in a paper plate. Now, I've let this mule deer get away at 10 yards. I went home and I sold all that crap, went and got me a wooden bow, spray painted it with primer and some wood arrows. And that's what I stuck with. So I started making, so I got a long bow. And I, when you couldn't get hardly a, you know, a bow from a store, when everybody quit making recurves, then I had Dick make me a, a, a 68-inch, 60-pound longbow, and I hunted with it till I started making Osage flat bows. And I started that in about 92, I guess. And made several bows, taught a lot of people to make bows. Sort of something you pass on. Somebody helped me. I went to Jim Hamm and Ron Harkhouse's school in Texas and perfected, you know, making bows better. And then I've tried to pass that on, cut a lot of Osage wood with the guy Tony Bell in Alabama. And we passed a lot of that around. And Krista made her bow, I guess, in the late 90s out of Osage and took her best deer with it first first month after she made it. And we, you know, I've always made my own arrows since the early morning, late 80s. And so we enjoyed doing that. I wrote a commentary, I guess you say, Campfire Philosopher, try something new a few years ago. And I got to thinking I'd always wanted a Howard Hill laminated Big Five bamboo bow since I was a little kid. So I ordered me one in the last couple of years. That's what I've been shooting with. I'm a one bow at a time person. Yep. And my last Osage bow that I really hunted with the most, I made it in like 93. And I still shoot it. But I, it had finally got tired and lost a few pounds. And hunting moose, I was about to make me a new bow. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try this. Howard Hill bow for a while, and I've really, really enjoyed shooting, and I've learned something from it, too. I, um, a lot of mistakes people make with, like, heavy woods like Osage is design characteristics of getting the normal wood that you need to make the bow and lighter tips that help, but uh, heavy wood wants a heavy arrow, and I'm shooting so many wild hogs. I learned that heavy arrow means good penetration, and I shoot 800 grain hickories. And I noticed that that laminated Howard Hill bow, it has a deeper core than a lot of bows. It throws a heavy arrow really, really well. I've been surprised by it. If you shoot light little arrows out of it, it has some hand shot that long bows, you know, are credited with. And so does my Osage bow. But I don't shoot light little arrows. <laughs> I shoot heavy arrows. So, and I've had really good luck with it. I enjoy shooting it. I enjoy shooting my Osage bow. What uh, what uh, broadheads do you like to uh, put on those hardwood shafts? I've been shooting grizzlies for about since the mid to late 90s. Okay. Uh, I actually, before I heard about Ashby or anything, I was, Chris and I, I would, she'd never been to Alaska. In fact, it was about 98, I guess. I, I came up here caribou hunting with a, a buddy who's he had somebody coming with him and they bailed out at the last minute he called and asked if we'd go to alaska and i said yeah so i finally got crystal my wife to alaska and when i was planning we were going to southwest and i knew it was windy out there i'd been out there and i thought well i'm gonna try three to one head and see if i you know it might help out in high winds 
and I shot a really nice bull caribou there, and I was amazed by the penetration, and, and it flew really good, and I got back to Alabama and shot several deer and hogs with those heads, and I was never saw any reason to change. I mean, any sharp broadhead will work, but I've had really good luck with grizzlies. Yeah, I shoot grizzlies as well. Um, do you do you find uh, you lack in blood trails shooting the grizzly? I've heard a lot of guys say that. Um, what's been your experience? Say what? Uh, that, that they don't I'm get sorry, great. But... Uh, there's been guys that say they haven't gotten great blood trails with the with the grizzly, just maybe because it's a, a narrower head. What's been your experience with that? Um, I think it's most important is is where you hit them. And whether you got to exit, if it's high and low, that has way more to do with it than the broadhead, I think. I've killed animals with Zwickies, Magnuses, Wenzel, Snuffers, one advantage to living in Alabama, and we never worked in winter. We just hunted, and we shot a lot of animals, and we had a lot of people hunt with us, and I've blood trailed. I have no earthly idea. I mean, Chris and I together, I'm sure we killed several hundred animals, but... And we're friends. We blood trail a lot of animals. The most important thing is where you hit them, you can get an arrow out the bottom of them. They're going to bleed if you don't. But I think the grizzly cuts a great big hole. We were just talking about that on moose when we were processing the moose the day before yesterday. I've always thought they cut a, a big old ass cut. Yep. You know, it's a pretty good size hole. And I've been quite satisfied with them. I, I shoot a 190, but I. I uh, usually have cut it down a little bit. I shoot the older ones. I've still got a lot of older ones. I know they've changed the bubble on them some now and the weight, but I've never had an issue with them. Well, that's good to hear. I've uh, They haven't let me down yet, so I uh, just thought I'd get your uh, input. Besides the um, hickory shafts, what other shafts have you run through your bow? Have you shot furs or... Cedars or whatever. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm sure I started off with custom king cedar arrows, which was about as fine a shooting arrow as you could ever get. They don't sell them as that anymore. You can still get shafts from them, but I shot their tapered. I'm a big believer in rear taper, the last ten inches rear tapered. Yep. Um, I shot cedars for a while, and then I went to Douglas fir. And I've shot a lot of large when you could get it off and on. You still get it now. I mean, it's, you started back then and you get it for a while. You couldn't get large. I like large because here again, you get a heavy air. I've got some a quiver full of 760 to 780 grain large shafts right now. But, uh, and what's they your, shoot really well. what's your Howard Hillbow, uh, poundage and what's your draw length on it? It's, 57 pounds at 26 inches. And okay. I try to get to 26. Sometimes I shoot 25. But, uh, and I shoot a 60 65 spine. 66 and I cut it back only, even though I, I, I have for years with a self bow, I shoot a long arrow. I leave my arrows 28 inches back at the point. And with my self bow, I'm only pulling 25. It's got a real narrow little handle. And I found that I got way better air flight, a little bit longer air, rather than trying to cut it off just an inch longer than my draw. And I shoot a 27 and a half back a point with my hickories and my larch, even though I'm pulling around 26. Very cool. Have you tried Sitka spruce? 
No, I'm, I'm, I have some spruce bolts drying actually right now. I'm going to try to hand split. I've shot a, I've shot a good many yellow birch shafts. And I shot a lot of river cane steel, um, which is a lighter arrow, but it's really, really tough arrow. But I think of what else I've shot. I've shot, tried maple years ago, tried ash, but I kind of settled on hickory. Hickory is really tough and get them good and dry. And once you get them straight, they stay straight. If you straighten them with heat, they stay straight. And I'd say they're tougher than any carbon arrow they ever came out with. I got nothing against them. It's what just, are those? Yeah. But hickory, uh, I've just seen, I should shoot the same arrow over and over at animals. I mean, I've killed a bunch of animals with the same arrow. You know, they're just tough arrows. Oh, that is cool. Do you, do you run a uh, quiver on your bow or back quiver or side quiver? How do you carry your arrows into the woods? I use a, I use a plain style quiver. Um, Kristen made me one. We bring tanned a couple of big deer pods back in early nineties and I got a, a horseback hunt through PBS that they were just giving away at the first PBS convention I ever or gathering I ever went to in, I think, 92, Lake of Ozarks. We had a hunt north of Cameron, Wyoming for two, for like $600 it went for. And I didn't have that much money then. And I, you know, I, I used Christmas credit card and got it. <laughs> and we went out there and to go, I made a new Osage bow, a little shorter. I think we're going to be hunting off horse, and it was more the adventure and the horse trip than it was really, you know, caring about some trophy. But I made a new Osage bow, and I thought, well, what am I going to hunt with? I had made, a, I had a back quiver, and I had a side quiver, a Pope and Young style side quivers like they made out of deer skin. I'd hunted with that. I hunted very little with a bow quiver. I never liked them on my bow. And so I decided, well, the, the plains, tribes hunted totally off horses and they had all pretty much used a side quiver and so we made us one and I still use it it's held up really 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 well and I got used to it and as far as I'm concerned it's the best it hangs right in front of me goes through bushes wonderful I can swing it around over my back and drop it in front I have arrows right in front of me I don't have to look down and reach in and grab one I can shoot pretty quick with it it's quiet, but everything's protected, and that's what I like. But if anybody ever wants to make one, you might as well bring Tanner Hyde and do it because no other leather will make a good one. Something about the the texture of the brain tan holds that fletch in, and they're really, really tough. Oh, I'd love to see a picture of that. Yeah, I actually made a, a new one uh, last year. I had a hide 15 or 20 years I'd been saving. But my other one is Krista beaded it, and it's totally sewn with sinew and everything. I, like I hunted with it almost every day from 92 to last year, and I, I'm like, man, I'm going to lose this thing up here in Alaska. I'm going to tear all my beads off eventually, and I'm going to make me a new one. And so I, I did, and I got it on the wall. But that's just, that's just what I've determined is the best for me. Other people like other things. Bow quivers are really convenient. Everything's together. Stalking and crawling, they might be the best, but I don't like anything on my bow, and I like to shoot quick. 
So what? I'm on a second shot. When I see an animal, if he's still standing and he's in range, I'm still shooting at him. Yes, sir. What feathers, what size feathers do you use? Um, pretty high back. I cut my own. Um, I use at least five and a half and three quarter high. And I use a helical fletch. Because they usually get matted down and, and, you know, just hunting the arrows takes some abuse. And then get damp, so I want plenty of feather, especially with a heavy air. Do you run threes or four flush? Three. I started off with four, four, four inch years ago. And they shot good. I enjoyed that, but I, I find that the, the three bigger feathers work good. Do you do a self knock or do you run a plastic knock or? I've only done self knock since the early nineties, but I have made a few lately. I've been shooting so much here lately in the yard. I started putting a few plastic knocks on actually, and I learned again that I have more trouble getting a knock on straight with plastic than I do just cutting a self knock in. I have a few self knocks now that I shoot in. We shoot indoors a lot up here in the winter, and a lot of the targets are close, and the guys are heck on arrows. And so I started having some disposable and putting plastic knocks on. And I, I noticed, like I said, that I have to really be particular. Or they won't be perfectly straight. But I can take that shaft, tapered a little on the end, put it in my vise, and saw it with a tile cutter blade on a hacksaw, and eyeball it in, and then take a little bitty rat tail hobby file and shape it just like I want it and sand it out with the perfect tension and it takes me a little longer but I got exactly what I want I never had any trouble I've never ever had a self knock break out of tens of thousands of them shot do you tie do you strengthen the end with sinew or anything I do on softwoods um, probably wouldn't even be necessary with citrus spruce but I, I always softwoods like Duck fur or large, I'll wrap them with a piece of sinew. But uh, hickory, I don't, I don't wrap them. You can't destroy them. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty bulletproof. Um, so the heavy arrow thing, you know, I thought I was shooting heavy arrows at six fifty, and then you say eight hundred. Um, how did you? You just kept uh, finding what you could get away with and go heavier and heavier and heavier and you were just getting quieter and, um, you know, better penetration. I mean, how did that evolve for you? Well, a lot of it is just playing around, enjoying archery and experimenting. I've always tried to shoot every day and I like to play with stuff. And I'm also a historian in that I've read everything I possibly could on archery from the get-go. And being in London, I got to go to a lot of museums, went to the Mary Rose, and researching in Spain, I read a lot about contact period in the New World with the native culture. And anything that I would read, I would try to experiment with, you know, just out of curiosity. And I started shooting different woods. And I read about, if you read about Will and Maurice Thompson, they make the comment of the finest high-field hickories. And that perked my interest. And so uh, when Allegheny Mountain was turning out hickories, I got 
shafts from them, and they looked crooked as a snake, and I had a hard time straightening them, and I called Bill Bowles on, and he said, use heat, let them stabilize, get them, you know, don't rush them. And so I learned how to straighten them, and they stay straight, and I noticed how quiet my bows were. And then I got to noticing how stable they are and how much better they shot. I mean, like when you make a mistake, you know, we're not standing in line all the time with perfect form. Right. And a heavy arrow is way more forgiving. Absolutely. And I, shooting a bow that shoot them, I haven't noticed a whole lot of difference in trajectory at my hunting yards. You know, I'm trying to get close. I'm not going to shoot 50 yards. But what some is, bows are heavy arrow better. Where do you draw the line for yardage? 35 yards. But 99 <laughs> I think I've killed three animals over 30 yards, but I, yep. my best shooting when I try to just, like, if I can get a 17 to 18 yard shot, he's dead. 10 yards, I may miss him, but I don't mind shooting. <laughs> I think it's a you common know, perception. On the side of the Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just, um, it depends on the size of the animal too and the situation. There's so many, I mean, you kind of know. You shot a lot. You look at the animal. You know whether you can kill him or not. If I have the least, don't feel good. I don't care how far he is. I'm not shooting. Yeah, it goes by but, feel. That's how yeah. I. That's how I definitely. So up in when you guys started doing your Alaska adventures, um, did you always? I know when we were texting you to do this podcast, you know, you're like, well, I'll be back in a month. You know, I mean, did you guys always go up there for that long? And were you? Did you start doing float trips, or did you start? Um, you know, just getting dropped in one spot? Like, how did that work when you started? Well, when we came up the first time, we got dropped out of Iliamna on a lake. And the other guy had kind of lined it up, and I never really trust anybody. So I did a check on the transport and found out it was Tim Laporte out of um, Iliamna. had a real good reputation, and I called him, and he dropped us off on a beaver float plane, uh, one of his pilots did on the lake. That worked out good, and then when I came up and didn't come back up here to hunt again. So, but we've always hunted long times. I mean, we've hunted. We would set the teepee up in Alabama first week of October, and we'd break it down right before Christmas and move it somewhere else. So we, you know, pretty much always just hunted. And when I decided when I was fifty, I wasn't wasting any of my winters doing anything but hunting. I couldn't be bought hunting season. But uh so in Alaska I came up and met Dick Robertson and Yote on the Moose John and we stayed about ten days or a little longer. The weather kept us from getting there in time and so then when we came up here we just pretty much gonna hunt all the hunting season. We go to the when we go down to the Moose John, I've been kinda guarding it just trying to keep a bow hunter presence there for Jay's sake. I stay the whole moose season. I go around the first of September. I fly down and, and leave some extra food and a drum and some stuff and I go by. Get extension a resident can get on the moose season for extra five days to the twenty fifth of September. So we would go around the first and stay to the twenty fifth. And then I last few years I've tried to get up to the Brooks Range for several weeks before then this year we just packed up we never had caught the main migration of the 
porcupine caribou herd. We'd see a few stragglers, but we wanted to see a lot of caribou just for the sake of seeing them. And so we packed up for three weeks and wound up right in the middle of them and had to bring some meat home so we didn't get to stay for 10 days. So I kind of felt cheated. Worst thing you can do is kill an animal on the first day of hunt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Makes your trip a lot shorter. Yeah, I hunt for the sake of hunting. If I kill something, that's great. If I don't, but I don't want to cut my hunt short. I haven't killed something too quick. I wish I could. Yeah. So opposite of what most guys do these days. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, like I said, I think people shortchange themselves. I mean, why are we hunting? You know, I mean, what's the purpose in it? Oh, I think too many people are hunting for ego, I guess, but when you're out in the middle of the woods and nature, ego doesn't mean very much, but I don't know. I don't quite understand hunters anymore, actually, but uh, I hunt to be out there hunting. I hunt for pancakes on the fire, picking berries, seeing animals, learning more about the weather, learning more about the animals. And when I put it all together, it gets me close enough generally to kill something. But I I know I went on a bear hunt with a bunch of PBS guys about, oh, I guess it's been 12 or 14 years ago. And I killed a really nice bear. I mean, I guess I I don't measure anything. But anyway, he was one of them they put in a book. But he, uh, I killed him on the first afternoon. And then I'm like, watching everybody else hunt for five more days. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. I'd rather not kill nothing. <laughs> oh, that uh, that should be my new perspective since I seem to be on a roll of not killing anything. I can just tell myself <laughs> that that uh, I am getting a lot more days out here in the field because I am. Well, that's the beauty of it. You know, it's the sunrise, the sunset. Yeah, all the stuff that goes with it. It's yeah. like, you know, it's, to us, yeah. it's being in camp. I think you're That's right about what, that that ego thing. I think a lot of guys are hunting for for pictures of themselves with an animal that they can put on the internet. It seems to be uh, that the the new reason to uh, get her done, as they say. Yeah, you know, like I said, I don't hardly understand it or. The size of the rack, I remember processing the moose day before yesterday, and this young fellow that I was working with, you know, he's killed a lot of animals, and he, he's like, uh, and we were talking about size. And we're like, you know, we're more into the meat, I guess you would say. <laughs> it's like, like that old saying, you can boil those antlers and boil them, and you still can't eat them. And Crystal make baskets out of them, <laughs> make good tools, but, uh, I just got a nice caribou up in the brook range, and his head and rack still sitting up there beside the river somewhere. If the animals eat it, I wasn't taking a chance on taking extra weight to fly it back. The the meat but, is uh, the is the, the trophy, but the adventure is is the reason, right? Right, that's exactly it. The meat's cause it's good. Right, we love to eat meat. Chris is in there right now processing a caribou shoulder. But we don't eat anything while meat happening ever in the day. But it, the meat is the reward, but the, 
the whole big thing is to hunt. Yeah, and I recently argued with a friend who hunts with modern archery equipment, and he was saying he's a meat hunter, and that's why he does it. And uh, I, you know, kind of argued with him that if he was a meat hunter, he'd use a rifle, and he'd have his hunt over in, in one or two days. He wouldn't be out there for 30 days. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an adventure. I agree with that totally. Yeah. That's awesome. So I just saw it. I'm pretty much, I'm I've been pretty outspoken against modern archery through the years, and it wasn't a personal thing against anybody using it. And I realized that most of the guys in traditional archery now probably started off with a compound because right. that's how you did it. That's what was available. And like I said, at one time, I couldn't even find a bow unless you got somebody to make me one. You know, there were a few people making them, but you didn't go to the hardware store and pick up a recurve. Right. But uh, we had a great archery club in Georgia, and they were scattered all over. And we would have a bow hunting, state bow hunting organization. We'd have a big hunt in Uvalda, Georgia, with Diana Quillen put it on a hog hunt and an archery shoot down there. And every, 90% of the bow hunters in Georgia would be there. It wasn't all that many, but lining the riverbank, campfires, and just having a big time. And if you went to a management area, and you saw another, during archery season, you saw another camp, you stopped, you know, and everybody visited. But I saw all that change when the compound came out. I, all the clubs died, just like the NFAA and field archery pretty much died. You kind of took the challenge away, and I also saw that they were, actually seemed to me they were wounding more animals Everybody was after the shortcut, the big old modular multi-blade, six-bladed injector heads, and nobody knew how to sharpen them anymore. And I just was kind of, why are you doing this? You're going away from archery. You know, you're not improving it. You're going away from it. And I always tried to point that out, not as trying to be a negative, or, but just because people don't realize what they're missing. That's a that's a great segue right there when you brought up the the wounding. I really wanted to bring this back around to uh you'd alluded to, you know, hunting in Alabama and being in on hundreds if not thousands of blood trails. And yeah. I think that that's something that everybody can learn from. Like if you've got any like uh little tricks or tactics that you'd be willing to tr- to uh share with us on uh, picking up the trail after the shot? Well, I guess the number one thing is before the shot. I learned, because we really, really were lucky, and I, you hate to even say this because you're back to that who's killed the most kind of thing, and I, you know, I killed all these animals, and I don't want it that way. But living in Alabama in the South with long, long hunting seasons and being able to hunt every day, and we lived in the woods where we could actually, you know, physically hunt from the doorstep and it was a lot of deer there we shot a lot of animals and i learned the most important thing is 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 what an archer has to have is patience in waiting on the perfect shot let the animal go you know i mean if you only got a weekend that might be hard to do but i i just would wait for the perfect shot you know i'd let the animal walk i'd let him walk by 12 yards if he wasn't turned right uh his leg was back, and he didn't look perfectly great shot. I just learned not to shoot. One worth it. 
and then watch the animal fall. When you make a great shot, watch him fall. But that's the most important thing. And then after that is, is don't have too many people help you. The way we track is I put Krista on the blood trail because I can't see too good anymore. And I stay to the side, and I never try to mess up that. I'm watching ahead for an animal, and I let her track. And when she gets tired, I'll kind of take over. But I don't want a whole bunch of people trampling around in front of me. And don't just look for blood. It's like learn to follow the animal. It's I remember following hogs in the uh, St. Vincent Island in Florida in these big old palmetto thickets. And you're just on your hands and knees in a tunnel, and it's just trails everywhere. But we learn right off that there's millions of spiders there, and they've put silk across all the openings in those trails. So all you got to do is hit it with a flashlight, and you'll see, well, it didn't go this way, it didn't go this way. There's no spider webs here, it went that way. And then in a minute, you'd find another speck of blood on a leaf. But be very aware of what's going on. Look for overturned leaf, look for whatever you need to. And have the blood is just a confirmation. If you can see blood just poured out on the ground, you know, it's not, it's not an issue, but it's when it's a drop here and a drop there. Exactly. But, uh, That's patience nice. is the, is the thing. Uh, what about? And not being uh, in too big a hurry. Yeah. We wait you... a pretty, pretty long time. If it's cold and it's a smaller animal that's not going sour, we won't even try at night. Sure. I was going to we'll ask that. How do, manage, first thing. how do you manage that? Uh, you know, from, like you said, a, a small pig to a uh, bull moose. I mean, how do you manage, where do you draw the line? How do you read that sign to know what's the right choice? Well, you pretty much, I use, I've never not known where my arrow hit for one thing. I never, I know where my, I shoot pretty bright feathers and I shoot big feathers. And I, that's one thing I can't understand how these guys shooting these real fast, little bitty dark camo arrows that are <laughs> ever how fast they're going. Looking through that pipe, the peep sight, I don't think they ever see the arrow hit, but I know exactly where my arrow hit and I analyze it and I watch what the animal did and I decide. But if it's an elk or a moose, you know, get on it and do what you have to do. But then again, I, I tracked my first moose. The guys helping me, they were like, we never seen anybody. Krista was on the trail, and they're like, how do you do this? How, how do you know this? We had to track <laughs> track it pretty good ways. But uh, I'm like, good God, moose weighs a lot. <laughs> They're easy to track, and there's only one of them. A bunch of deer, um, deer trails, you know, and in the deer country, there are a lot of tracks on an elk herd. It's hard to stay on the one animal. There's so many tracks and so much sign, but a moose is generally a solitary animal, and it's easy to follow. I mean, you can follow them. They weigh a ton, and the ground's soft. Whether they bled or not, you can follow a moose. I get on a moose trail a lot of times, and go a long, long ways just following him to see what he was doing because they're easy to track. Yes. Uh, hogs. Hogs can be hard because there's so many of them generally. And you mentioned uh, going to the really heavy arrow for hogs. I'm going to hunt hogs uh, this winter. I have yet to do that. Um, so the heavier, heavier the arrow, the better, I suppose. 
Yeah, the thing, the secret to hogs, and I've cut some, split some, and tried to show people, but and it, different places, different hog, they're different hog subspecies, I guess you would say, of how they evolved. Some I've seen a difference in hogs in different parts of the country that I guess they evolved from different strains of hogs, but some of them more so than others. Some of them, particularly with a boar, the shoulders sit way back. The, the the heart lung is way up under the shoulder. Most people make a perfect shot on, they think on a hog that's behind the shoulder where they would be double lunging a deer and they can't find out, they can't figure out why they didn't find them. And I had that problem at first. I started really autopsying them when I, and looking at what happened. But you gotta shoot a hog tight in the shoulder. I shoot them. One reason I shoot heavy air is, is I shoot hogs right through the front shoulder. I line up on the front leg. I'd like it to go right over the knuckle, but I, it's, and you gotta shoot low. If you look at a hog's skeleton structure, his skull is just perfectly flat at the back and low in the base of the skull comes out the spinal column. It comes out really low and actually dips down even more and then curves up, makes a V right in the shoulder area. And it's really easy to shoot too high on a hog, particularly because they're short animals. And when you put one in the grass or in some cover, you're only seeing the maybe the upper two-thirds of the animal. Well, then if you shoot in the middle of it, you have a tendency to shoot over the backbone. They have big rays on top of that spine and that front part of the spine. And it's really easy to shoot over a hog without realizing it. You think you've shot it mid-body, can't figure out what happened, but you actually shot over the backbone. So I'd recommend looking at a picture of a hog skeleton, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, is the quartering away shot preferred then? Yeah. yeah. I've never lost a hog even facing away from me, uh, but I've, I've lost several that were quartering to me. Yeah. It's just I don't do that anymore. Right. I've just I've learned... But quartering away is best. But one problem with hogs, and I used to really like, I hunted a heavily hunted management area. Well, it was a refuge. It was archery only. I always only been archery only in Alabama. And people came from all over the state that hunt because it had a big hog population at one time. And watching the modern archers, they, they would get so mad. They would come in. Everybody camped in one area. They would come back, and Chris and I and our friends would always be skinning a hog out, and they're like, ah, I don't know how you do it when those old slow bows, we're, you know, I can't get a shot. I'm like, oh, well, they're never going to stop. A hogs never steal. Might as well learn. you got to shoot a moving target. I mean, mm-hmm. or he's turning this way and he's turning that way, and one's running in front of him. It's kind of a hard thing. I just bore in on that front shoulder, and when he's perfectly sideways, I shoot him right through that shoulder. Now, a head would be great too if you can get that shot. But I've never had much trouble with hog bone structure. I mean, the biggest hog I ever killed, I, he was at least 300 pounds. I couldn't get him off the ground with the scale to get him weighed. But I shot him with a little 52 pound Osage bow that's probably the slowest Osage bow I ever made. And I was having some shoulder issues, and I wanted to go shoot that little bow, and I, I carried it out. And I was shooting a, a like a 750 or 780 larch with um, 
a grizzly on it, and the hog came running by on my offside, and I swung real quick, led and shot, and shot him a little bit too far forward, but I shot him through the shoulder and into that backbone area, this right at the top of the scapula, and cut his backbone completely in two. And he flipped over, and that's where he was. But got wonderful penetration on him with that little bow. I've just never had any issues shooting hogs through the shoulder. I've had some arrows bounce off a deer's scapula, but I've always never had any issues with a hog. I don't know what the difference is, but I just say, I've just learned if you shoot them through the shoulder, you're going to watch them spin around and they're going to fall over. You shoot them a little bit far behind that shoulder and you're not going to have anything. So, yeah, angling, um, angling ahead would, you know, is, is good, but I just, I don't know. I've shot a lot of hogs. <laughs> sounds like it. They can be aggressive, can't they? Well, as <laughs> we have a hog story where I had, I got cut pretty bad and had a hog on me and Krista killed him off the top of me. She did a thing about her life years ago, but that's the, I've had several of them that, uh, Usually, if they're fighting over Wait, a sow, you had a hog attack. They get all shot it off you. Yeah, I sh- shot a. We explored a new area by canoe up in the swamp, and I shot a hog about noon that came out. And just as I drew and released, he saw me and he bursted ahead pretty fast. And I saw that the the arrow hit pretty far back. And I wasn't sure if I hit him in the ham or the paunch. I decided it was noon that I'd wait a light before dark before I even moved. So I just sat there. And right before dark, I used to have find the air, and it was greasy. I didn't see any blood, but I got on his track and east along the swamp, and about 100 yards I could hear low grunting over in the sawgrass and, and a little bit of water in sawgrass past tree line and went any bushes there. And I eased out there, and I could just make him out. I thought, well, he's down, but he's living. So I... I tried another shot, but the sawgrass kind of caught the fletch and deflected the air, and it kind of hit right in the top of the back and just glanced off and went out into space. And the next second, I saw him right at me. When I was standing next to the last little tree, was you could almost reach around a, a hop horn beam, and I just instinctively jumped up on it and threw my legs up, and he ran right under me. And I hit the ground running behind him because a lot of times I've actually – We've been tracing, uh, tracking a wounded hog and jump him up, and in open woods, they are not really that fast. I've actually run them down, stay on them, and they finally whirl around and then finish them off. But this one, I couldn't catch him. And he uh, ran out on this, through some water and on this little island, and it was getting late, and I decided to pull out. Well, the next morning, Krista and I went back. And I saw a lot of little tracks coming off of it, but I didn't see a big track. I said, well, he's out there. And we got on it, and the wind had blown some huge water oaks down, and they were all grown up in briars and vines and kind of cut the island in two. And I said, well, one of us needs to take a stand, and the other one circle over. And she said she wanted to circle. So she took off, and after a bit, I eased up to this big log and stepped up on it. When I looked over the other side in this briar patch, it was just matted down and just like hog and I thought man this is a hog condominium and I could look across the woods over the stuff and I saw her coming walking to me just steady like she'd finished the search and I said you didn't see that hog and she said no I said well he's here just wait 
And I stepped off, and when I did, about 12 yards in front of me in this dead treetop was this hog. I guess you'd say growling. I'd never heard a hog making that sound before. <laughs> and I, I'm like, well, there he is. I started drawing. I'm like, well, you done screwed this up twice. I don't think you can get an arrow through there. And so I, I yelled at Krista. I said, stop, I got him, which was sort of a little premature. And I'm running through my mind, where is he going when he leaves here, and how am I going to move her around where we can cut him off? And and this sound he was making, I could tell he was pretty stirred up. I really had never thought a hog was trying to get you. I just thought you would be in the middle of a trail, and that's the way he wanted to go. But I looked over my shoulder, and it was a little dead sapling there, but it was about seven feet up, and just the top had brought it off. And as I was looking at it, the treetop exploded, and he came right at me, and I was wearing Chippewa snake boots, or pull-on boots that come up to your knees. And I whirled and started drawing, but he was so fast, I didn't get a quarter of the way back. And he he hit me. I kind of turned sideways, and he hit me right in the left leg. And Tuss went, Tuss went through the boot, and when he tried to throw me or cut me, it threw me over his back. Like instead of the boot tearing, kind of those boots on, he just split me wide open. But he threw me. I went over his back, and I landed on the ground behind him. And while I was in the air, a little bitty girl, wimpy, help, help, quick, <laughs> came out. And I hit the ground. And as soon as I did, I, I'd lost my bow. You know, I'm laying flat on my back, and the second I hit the ground, he whirls and runs at me, and I I was kind of facing him with my feet, and I instantly pulled my feet up and kicked him right in the face. And I yelled again, come quick. Well, Krista starts tearing towards me, but it was a lot of black bear and sawbriar she had to come through on that side. And uh, this hog is like slashing at me and running around trying to get me in the side, and I keep spinning on my back and kicking him just as fast as I can, and I, head with my boot and just as Krista got through the briars where she could see me she didn't know the hog was still there she thought something had happened and she tore through the briars and looks down from about eight to ten yards just as that happened the hog knocked my left leg out of the way and just came right up my middle and I raised up kind of a sitting quick lunged up like in a sitting position and hit him in the face with the palms of my hands, and somehow I grabbed both ears. When I grabbed both of his ears, he just kind of froze. And my face is about six inches from his face, my knees up over his shoulders, and I got these hog ears, and he ain't moving. And I don't know how long this was. I'm sure it was only, you know, seconds. It seemed like a long time. But Krista steps out, and <clears throat> and I can see she's, pretty upset and distraught and I can see she's excited. I've coached her a lot on shooting 3D and stuff so I looked up and I said hey take your time and make a good shot. I'm thinking when this arrow hits this hog me and him going to ride. Well she took a breath, stepped to the side and drove air in about two inches to the right of my right knee and it hit with a whop and the hog never even flinched but I can see a lot of air sticking out. She was shooting a maple the Custom King Maple with a Magnus head, I think it was at that time. And uh, I'm thinking, man, she shot 
scapula or something. I'm like, quick, shoot again. And she said, that's a good shot. I'm like, what is she talking about? She was just saying, <laughs> said, shoot again. She said, it's a good shot. About that time, the hog pulled backwards away from me like I was some little baby holding your fingers. He just pulled back, whirled towards her, and I screamed, climb a tree. But she, cause she was in briars, didn't have time. He made three quick lunging steps towards her and hit the ground dead. She cut his hay order right off. But uh, it just looked like a lot of air. But she'd made a perfect shot. But he'd split my leg open pretty good. I had to go to, and wound up finally to Meridian, Mississippi, to the hospital to get some sutures and stuff. It had me a little fearful of hogs for a while. That's it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. That is incredible. Uh, and now on your Alaska adventures, you got to have some good stories there. I know we're keeping you a long time here, but... Um, you know, all those years floating the Moose John and all those adventures up there. What was the, you know, do you have any close run-ins with bears or tipping the raft? What was, you know, you got a good story on, on that where maybe you came close to not making it? Uh, the flying's probably the worst part of Alaska. I think a lot of pilots are pretty lackadaisical about what happens when they come up here and get with their charter guy and flies out in the bush and comes back. The weather up here is what'll kill you. We lose pilots every year. And I learned to fly an airplane in 2014 just so I could fly myself around. I'd only flown helicopters, but I had a lot of experience in the air in Alaska, 10,000 hours. So I, I knew I had airmanship, but I had never flown an airplane. So I got on bush plane. Well, I didn't have to ride with anybody else. I didn't trust anybody else. But I would say the most dangerous thing you do out here is fly, get dropped off and picked up. But, uh, Outside of that, you know, bear issues, just being out that long, I've dealt with a, a lot of bears. I'm real particular of them. You never know. Most bears just want to get away from you. But we've had a had a couple. I had one. I had a grizzly step on the back of the tent. I was in a cot. He stepped on the back of the tent on top of me. And, and I thought the wind was pounding into the tent. And then I heard him step on the frozen lichen, and then he stuck his nose against the tent up against my face in the sleeping bag before I could move. And then, I, you know, what do you do? I didn't do anything. I just, just for a second, he, like, pushed right up against my face. I'm, like, froze. And then he turned and walked away. I got out of the bag, rolled over, and lifted the tent up. And he's just walking around camp, looking around, and walked right on out of camp. So every one of them's not wanting to eat you. Good thing. But, but I've never had to kill a grizzly bear. I've, I've actually had more problems with uh, black bears. I've, I've had to kill several aggressive black bears. They're they're different. It's a different situation usually. You have, generally have more time to decide what's going on. But as soon as you see a black bear that's aggressive and you realize what he wants, you know it. There's no question in your mind. This bear, you know, i got to put this thing down. And luckily, a lot of times you're... You know, you're just light and you can, but, but they're up here. So are you, uh, you're still out flying around and, and planning and, uh, living out these adventures, it sounds like with your wife, huh? Yep. Um, I, I got, I mean, that's why I'm up here. I guess I got a few more years to do it. I hadn't really ever, 
thought about it. I try to stay in good shape so I can hunt. I ski all winter. I love cross-country skiing. It's really good exercise. Actually, probably better shape in the winter than I am in the summer. But this year, we kind of got cut short. I had company coming, and we would have been back out all of September. But I had one of my kids coming, and I actually don't have any more freezer space which is a good thing when you're full of <laughs> halibut and salmon and moose and caribou and the freezer's totally full it's hard and, to complain <laughs> and you are living right my my friend you are living right wow uh what what kind of uh what would you leave our listeners you know with uh, some advice on uh on uh on life well there's no guarantees you know, you don't you don't know how long you're gonna be here. Enjoy it, and it's really important. Also, way more important than what we kill or what we do. Think about what planet you're leaving our kids and grandkids. As Native Americans said, you know, they plan for many generations down the road. Unfortunately, we're not doing that. So, if you don't have a place to hunt, you're not gonna hunt, and we need to leave them something. It's like people left us. I think that's more important than the animals. But as far as hunting, make it hard. Don't make it easier. You'll get way more out of it. Oh, man. That's awesome. You are a very well-spoken guy that, like I said, is living right. I really enjoyed this uh, time you spent with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And appreciate what you're doing. Sounds like it's the way to go. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Check us out on Instagram. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot. Shoot straight. The deer are fat and happy. No, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer. I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is a week or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all quite true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can.